Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Comics Collective, the weekly podcast where we talk about our favorite comic books and graphic novels. I'm your host, Dallas. I'm Alexis. And I'm Anne. And I'm raising my hand. See? Raising the hand. We're good. That's how you know. We discovered a new feature because we lost our camera privileges. Her hand, <laughs> if you will. And on, to- and on today's episode, we will be having a very serious, no-nonsense conversation oh, about... Frank Miller, Klaus Janssen, and I i think it's Len Varley, but I need to look it up. The Dark Knight Returns, the seminal Batman comic book, the one that everybody has read. If this is your first time listening to our show, please stick around. I hope you enjoy and go into our backlog. We have a ton of great comic book talk, but here it is. Here is the big boy. I was right. Lynn Varley. Look at that. I got the colorist off the dome. I need to know before we dive into anything else. How are you two doing? Doing good. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) She said that's new. Saw Batman being a good dad once, and he's like, you know what? I should really ask them how they're doing. Um, (laughs) He looks at you and me, Lex, and he's like, good soldiers. They're good soldiers. For real. When he said that about Robin, I said, motherfucker. Batman. (laughs) I'm doing great, Dallas. How about you? Staying warm? Uh, Try my best to stay warm. Listen, I've realized I'm terrible at small talk. When Mm -hmm. this week I texted a bunch of people I haven't talked to in like three plus years and I just texted them with what I needed from them. And then all of them responded back like, hey, dude, so good to hear from you. How have you been? Period. Okay, and now here's the thing that you wanted to talk about. And I'm like, shit, I'm a dick. (laughs) Oops. (laughs) Whoops a daisy. I love that New York City subplot you've discovered. Yeah. Yeah. Whoops. Whoops a daisy. <laughs> so, all right. Small talks out of the way. Back to the real podcast. The Dark Knight Returns is a seminal comic book from 1986. And Alexis, I am going to tell you the crazy origin story of this comic. Okay. Please do. Please do. It's from the all 80s. Right. So, has so, to be something wild. In 1986, Frank Miller is the new young hotshot coming off of a groundbreaking run with the character Daredevil, who he tells stories about in a little place called Hell's Kitchen, which is the neighborhood that Frank Miller was living in, which now is very funny because that is the theater district where all the people who work on Broadway live because it's still pretty cheap to live in. And so it's like the gayest part of town. (laughs) And so it's always funny to go back and read Frank Miller comics where it's like, these streets are the hottest I've ever known. And I'm like, my friend's got a softball league there now. What are you talking about? (laughs) But in the 1980s, New York was a much harder place than it is now. And Hell's Kitchen was one of the seediest parts of town. And so Frank Miller, hotshot writer, is walking home from the Marvel offices one day and is brutally mugged. And he goes home, having been mugged, having been pounded, and he said that that unlocked Batman for him. He said, 
Frank Miller, unlike Alan Moore, who also published Watchmen in this year, 1986, Frank Miller is still a very big fan of superheroes. And he says that the key to writing any superhero is realizing what dream they provide for you. And he said, Superman, it's pretty easy to understand what dream that is. Everybody wants to fly. Everybody wants to be the Man of Steel. He says, but Batman was harder to unlock until that night when Frank realized the only thing he wanted in the world was someone that was big and strong and cared enough to stop the bad people from hurting him. And so he went home and at 29 years old, he said, I need Batman to be older than me and I need him to clean up the streets of New York City. And thus was born The Dark Knight Returns, which then came out. It took only five drafts to get this book, which it sounds like a lot, but that is not a lot of drafts. And Frank Miller presents this to editor-in-chief of DC Comics, Len Wein, at the time. And it hits like a bomb. So much of what comic books are today are born of The Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen. Simple things like narrative balloons instead of thought bubbles that are so commonplace now come from The Dark Knight Returns. The the idea that comic books can have adult themes and be aimed specifically at an adult audience comes from The Dark Knight Returns. This book changed comics, and many people think for better... And many think for worse. And we want to dissect that today on our episode. So before I do a quick summary of the book, I want just general non-spoiler thoughts. Can we do Anne and then Alexis and then me? General non-spoiler thoughts about The Dark Knight Returns. If you must. Oh, absolutely. I just non-spoiler thoughts about this book. This is not the first time I've read through this book. It's not the second time. This has to be like, the at least the 10th time I've read through this book. This has been an annual read for me since I've started comics. Um, you know, when you're getting into comics and you're like, okay, well, I'm reading things that I want to read, but also what are the what are the big things? What are the things I need to read? And you get into books like, you know, people tell you to read Watchmen, people tell you to read um the big event books like um Crisis on Infinite Earths and Infinite Crisis, especially when you're focusing on like DC comics like I was. And you can't have a conversation where someone isn't like, oh, well, you have to read The Dark Knight Returns. It just doesn't happen. Those people typically don't exist in those spaces when you're like a a new reader to comics. And so I was just, I I jumped into it. I didn't know what to expect. And I was blown away. And I've been blown away ever since. My thoughts in the book waver a lot because there's a lot of really complicated themes in here and I don't think there's a lot of answers in the book which I think makes it really really special because it's a book that every time you come back to it you probably take something different away from it it's also a book that has a lot of criticism because of the impact it has had on both comics and the character and it's something I'm excited to dive into and talk about but even with all the the conversation I've had surrounding this book and all the thoughts I've had about it in the last few years, I still don't see this book as anything less than a masterpiece. Well, good, because I liked it too. And I was going to be really sad if we had to dissect it in a mean way. <laughs> I like Ratchet really Batman. Ratchet is my favorite. <laughs> um, but no, like really, 
I went into this with the context that Dallas had given me that this was a grouchy old man Batman. And I was excited because I was like, oh, so this is if Ron Swanson was made into a Batman. And I kind of was right, which is hilarious. Um, until he shaved his mustache, which was a little bit upsetting. I feel like it would have gone really well with the mask, if you ask me. Um, but honestly, I thought it was really fun. I really feel like while I was reading it, I just time and time again kept having this feeling of like, oh, this is the Batman that I have subconsciously sitting in the back of my mind, which is hilarious because you just said like, this is a story that shaped the character for into what we know now, you know, like it was a very um, foundational run for Batman. And I feel like it just made me so happy to have like my my big villains. I know who they are. I understand where they're ca- where they're coming from, why they are the way they are, and just like the the moment with like this is the sorry, gotta collect my thoughts. This is the Joker that I want. <laughs> like the whole he's just crazy, and I love it. I love Crazy Joker. I kind of am a little tired, I realized, of like just I feel like he kind of have in at least in the movies, like he kind of of course was sadistic and wild and a terrible, terrible human being. But like I love the camp that Joker has in this a little bit, you know? Um, so it just was very fun. It was very fun to see a very foundational story of Batman and see where he was. And I really liked this run a lot. I wasn't expecting to really like it as much as I did. I mean, because I know that I always put up a mean front that I don't like Batman, but I actually do. And so I was excited to read this one. So I'm very impressed. You like Batman? <gasps> Traitor. Did I say that out loud? Sorry. I can't No, believe. just kidding. I like Robin. I'm inconsolable. Robin's the best. And no one can change my mind. Okay, well, which ones? Uh, obviously, um, all of them. No, just kidding. Um, I don't know. I like Damien because he reminds me of a angry little hamster. <laughs> <laughs> I, I swear to God, if Damien's not a hamster right now in Beast World, Tom Taylor, no, that's what, what he are is. you doing? What, what are you I also, doing? I really like Carrie. <laughs> Carrie's very fun. Carrie but. is very fun. This oh, thanks for reminding me. There's a Robin that's a girl in this book. Fucking woke. Unbelievable. <gasps> mm-hmm. Classic woke politics. The, the DCU is back in action. <laughs> Lex, do you... I remember feeling very sad that you didn't connect as much with Batman Year One as I thought you would. This is Ooh. written by the same guy Oh, at roughly the same time what is it about this that you think you connected to so much more than batman year one if you can remember that was like almost two years ago that we covered yeah, Batman. that year was one. a while ago i don't know i feel like it kind of is just that feeling of weird nostalgia if that makes sense like his weird little tank batmobile i was like oh that was that movie that i watched with my dad Oh, this happened in that movie. Oh, oh, like all of these things that I had subconsciously stored away as being, quote unquote, the Batman that I know. It was kind of fun to see 
I feel like kind of where they came from. Is that wrong for me to say? Like, I feel like the, this was majorly the same vibes as like, of course, the famous movies with everybody that we like. Yeah. I mean, everything since this has had to be in conversation with this in some way. It is either being inspired by or setting itself up as a completely different take from this. And it's really entertaining to read interviews from Frank Miller now reflecting back on this book because he's like, I didn't know if anyone would like Grandpa Batman when I made it. And now it is widely considered to be the best and most important Batman comic of all time. He's like, and that's just consistently strange. He's like, I didn't really think it would have legs until about 20 years after when people were still talking about it. And then I sort of realized like, oh, okay, this book is going to be talked about for a very long time. And just the idea... I mean, that's got to be a strange feeling to be at 29 and make what many will consider to be the greatest Batman comic of all time. When A, you didn't invent Batman. It was your B, it was your first Batman story you ever wrote. And C, it was the really like the second or third major comic book project you'd ever undertaken like that. That is quite the home run to hit right off the bat. Um. But before we move into a little bit deeper talk, I do want to give a quick summary of the book for those who haven't read it in some time or those who may be new to The Dark Knight Returns. Um, If you haven't read the book, our show doesn't work great for that, but this little five-minute section should help you out. So... First things first, this book takes place firmly in the 1980s culturally. It is set in a distant future when Batman has aged and far out in the future from our current character's place. It's meant to be kind of Batman's last tale, but it is firmly set in the culture of the 1980s. And it is about a Bruce Wayne who was forced into retirement following the death of his second Robin, Jason Todd. And following that death of Jason Todd, he hangs up the cowl. He decides to just be Bruce Wayne, and he does that for 20 years until the city of Gotham is overrun with a group of villains called the Mutant Gang, who is just running amok through Gotham, terrorizing people. The city is in shambles, and Commissioner Gordon is about to retire until... Batman decides, you know what, I've got to come back for one last ride. And so what does he do? He dons the cape and cowl again. He takes his old man medicine and he Mr. Fredrickson's his way out the door into a walloping. And he beats the snot out of the mutant gang who are the only real new villains for this run. Following the defeat and imprisonment of much of the mutant gang and the conversion of the rest of them to a Batman gang that he doesn't really acknowledge until the end of the book, we move into our second issue where Two-Face is the major villain and antagonist of this portion. And we get to meet and interact in a bigger way 
with our Robin for this run, Carrie Kelly, who we will have a lot to say about. And the book shifts from a Batman story to a Batman and Robin story, where Two-Face decides to hold the Twin Towers hostage, and Batman's like, you know what? I gotta take this guy out. So he goes and he beats up Two-Face in a classic Two-Face and Batman brawl, which then rolls us brilliantly into issue three where the joker who we have seen placed throughout this series in arkham asylum which has become a very new age 1980s therapy center the joker comes back on basically without batman around he has not seen a purpose to being the joker but with batman back and defeating harvey two-face the joker says joker's back baby and he pulls off the iconic scene that you might remember from Joaquin Phoenix's movie, The Joker, where at a television broadcast, he kills everybody there and escapes to a carnival, which I thought was a ton of fun. And Batman chases him down to the carnival with Carrie Kelly. Batman and Robin split up. Batman goes, fights Joker, wounds Joker. Joker commits suicide to blame Batman for the death of the Joker while Carrie Kelly runs a bunch of interference up top and gets some gnarly Robin PTSD. It's a classic Batman Robin tale where Robin has something horrible happen to her and Batman's like, there, there, back to the army, you. And we roll after these events into issue four, which is the climactic issue where Batman must fight Superman. Every time you've seen Batman and Superman fight, it has been an homage to this cage match. Of this fight, Frank Miller said that A, he found that Superman and Batman would have to be on opposite ideological grounds and therefore perfectly set up for conflict. But then B, he said it was the coolest fight he could think of. It wasn't that deep. He wanted to put Batman in armor and have him punch the toughest guy in the world. And so Superman, who is a stooge of Ronald Reagan, is sicked on our Batman, who, in the throes of the fight, dies. At the funeral for Batman, I mean, how else did you think that was going to go? Come on. Superman is going to beat Batman. Come on. It's, it's simple. It's simple science. But at that funeral... Right at the last second, Superman hears the boom, 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 beating heart of Batman. Batman has faked his death to go underground to help Gotham City no longer as a man, but purely as a symbol. This is the larger story of how a man goes from a force for good into a true symbol for the downtrodden and... It's amazing. I love The Dark Knight Returns. Each of the four issues is a relatively standalone story that builds off of the one before it, painting out a picture of this downtrodden and aged Batman preparing his Gotham for the next generation. I need to know, Anne, did I leave Mm -hmm. anything out? Any favorite parts from The Dark Knight Returns that I didn't hit on? Nothing that's coming to I think you summarized it very well. Um, you missed Thank the you. most important thing that happened. Perfect. Let me know. Uh, Batman rode a fucking horse. Batman rode 
a fucking horse. I'm so glad you agree with me. Talk to us about Batman on the horse and that why was the that coolest. Rules. That was the coolest splash page I've ever seen in my entire life. I want that framed. Him on that black horse was the coolest thing I've ever seen. The coolest thing. Oh, my gosh. And then Robin get her own little horse. Oh, wonderful. Just wonderful. Them all riding to save the day with all the, the sons of Batman or whatever they call themselves. That was cool. His little gaggle of middle-aged teenage nerds. Great. This, this book absolutely follows the rule of cool. Like every, yeah. it has, it has the dirty Harry problem. So I had often heard people call this dirty Harry Batman and I had never seen dirty Harry. So today I watched dirty Harry and about halfway through dirty Harry, just like halfway through the dark Knight returns, I forgot that this was a satire and got caught up in like, get his ass dirty Harry. And then there's another little wolf of me. That's like Dallas. That's police brutality. And I'm like, he's real bad, though. Get him, Dirty Harry. And then the other wolf's like, Dallas, this is really quite frightening how much you're rooting for Dirty Harry right now. And then the other wolf's like, fine, fine. Dirty Harry's a bad guy, but isn't he kind of cool? The Dark Knight Returns is that for me, where I am fully aware that it is a satire. I am fully aware that it is a critique of 1980s America. And yet sometimes I'm like... Hell yeah, Batman beat the snot out of those kids in this haunted house. You are the scariest guy in the world. This is so cool. And I think the book can be both. But Anne, I know in your discussions of The Dark Knight Returns, you point people towards the satire, towards the critique. What is it about The Dark Knight Returns that you love? And is it possible to love both the subtext and meta context of the series and also just kind of like old man, tough Batman? <laughs> I, I, I obviously I think you can. There's it's I'm trying to think the best way to put this. Frank Miller as a creative visionary is incredibly uneven. He is inconsistent to say the least. Like you have, he writes masterworks like Daredevil and The Dark Knight Returns, but also he wrote The Dark Knight Strikes Back, and um, he he wrote Holy Terror, which we will not, you know, ever ever discuss because holy shit, um, I feel like Frank Miller works the best when he lets the audience do a lot of the interpreting for him because I don't think his views really lend themselves to fulfilling incredible stories i was actually looking this up earlier and someone said someone accused his work of being conservative and having that bend to it which i feel like you can take that reading from because he leaves things very open but he said i'm not i'm not a conservative i'm a libertarian and i'm like that is the most sensical thing frank miller has ever said in his life that makes so much sense that everything makes everything just clicked in my head right there but I think the interesting thing about The Dark Knight Returns that makes it so perfect is it is that really fun version of Batman, but it has that extra depth to it. It has the the perfect combination of everything that was happening in the 80s from the, the f- national fear of rising um, crime levels, of of murder. Um, if, if you watch any of the, the f- um, crime and noir movies and stories from the 80s, it it's such a common theme. All of them have that judge dread, RoboCop, 
um, kind of feel to it where it's like, we could very well all, <laughs> this country could just fall apart because of the crime. It's, it, it was it was ridiculous, but it, you have that and also the tensions of the Cold War that were happening at the same time. Um, <laughs> America was certainly a very interesting political landscape, especially with Ronald Reagan as the president. It's And all of that comes together in this perfect little mixture here in The Dark Knight Returns, and you feel Frank Miller's frustration with everything that's happening, that tension boiling under the skin, and it makes Batman such a believable and endearing character in this he's he's a brutal character but i feel like it brings that aspect to the batman that you can't have with a lot of other super superheroes it's that desire to do something the feeling that you are helpless but you want to do something anyway and i think yeah it's just I feel this book was the perfect combination of right time, right place, right themes to make it something that stands the test of time. It hooked everyone with the, it hooked everyone at the right time and it clung, clung along through the years for better or for worse. And I think it's, it's something really special. I'm, I'm very excited to get deeper into what those themes, what everyone thought about the themes, but Lexi, I'm going to pass it over to you. Oh, I was just flipping through all of the pages. I want to talk more about the villains a little bit because, I mean, the mutant gang was very fun. It was very mm-hmm. fun to, like, have Batman strike out again, like, doom, 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 I'm going to go get everybody, um, and then kind of get his ass beat a little bit because he was a little ambitious. Um, but then to have him take that and be like, okay, this is what I did wrong. This is what I need to do. Like I was trying to prove myself that I was still tough enough to do it without using my brain and realizing that I'm still regardless better than this guy. And then to come back and let go- have Gordon let him out of prison to fight him again. I was like, oh, Batman. <laughs> there you are. There's Batman that I like. Um, and then also the with Harvey Dent and having him having them fix his face. Um, oh, that it was just it was just so cool. Like, and I love the different moments that he got to have with his big famous villains, if that makes sense, to kind of see like where he had come from and who he was now. Um, it just was so cool. I I I'm was just having a great time. And then um to like kind of see like Arkham try and pass Harvey off as like, oh, he's been rehabilitated. He's been rehabilitated. Look, we fixed him. We fixed him. Like that was really fun for me to see like them them letting his villains out because of course I would love to be in his head and be like what he's thinking when they're doing this. He's like, oh my gosh. I like, because he's someone who, wants to believe in the system. I mean, he kind of gets to talk about that a little bit. Like he wants these people to have every chance to be rehabilitated. But I mean, specifically with Harvey and the Joker, we see that they're just to their core, just rotten villains. And um, specifically, I really like the part where Harvey's like screaming at Batman to take a look at his 
fixed face and Batman still sees like I guess what what's inside of Harvey he's like um he's like I know I basically like I know what you are like just because your face on the outside changed doesn't mean it changed anything on the inside which I thought was very interesting um so I thought that that was fun, like to have them try and prance Harvey around. It's like, oh, he's been he's been rehabilitated, and then for him to be the one who's sitting behind the scheme was really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, that was fun. Also, his like his design with like his bandages wrapped all around his head that was kind of cool. <laughs> he looked like a mummy, which I thought was cool. <laughs> um, yeah. There's talking about Harvey. I think there's a lot in this a lot that this book does well in talking about the relationship of man versus the system i love harvey as an example of that because it shows a system that is more concerned with looking good than actually being Mm -hmm. good and you talk about a lot of the commentary in the story between the relationship that people have with the government and the relationship they have with their heroes like they got the heroes off the streets they got Batman off the streets because there's that one part in the book where it actually quotes and it's like well the parents groups were upset with how violent he was and they they didn't think that this was safe for their kids so the government did what looked best and got rid of them and then we see when the book starts just things are a complete mess you can have the the system and the government telling you again and again and again things are okay we care we're fixing it and they put superficial fixes on things like they did with Harvey Dent where they're like, look, Harvey Dent is clearly cured because we fixed his face. When in reality, he is just as twisted as he had been before because, you know, his issues were more than skin deep. And it, I think that's a, that was a great villain to use to open up this book and the conflict is going to continue to, you know, cut through the whole thing between Batman and his villains, but also Batman and the system between what between Batman and Superman. Um, and I love that I love so much that we got um the Green Arrow to come in because when you think about anti-establishment superheroes, Green Arrow should be the first one on your list. Um, for for years, I was wondering like why why would they do that, but now it, it makes so much sense. And I've people. I don't know if we want to have this conversation now or wait until later in the episode since we're kind of just talking about the villains at the moment. But I love the way that Superman was used in the story to kind of symbolize that obedience, that that blind nationalistic optimism, that belief, that faith in the system. There is this scene that stuck out a lot to me this time through um, during the fight where Bruce is like, of course you believe in the system. Your parents told you to. My parents taught me a different lesson when they were um, bleeding out in the alley in the street. And I loved that that comparison, that um, duology of the two. And, you know, I'm going to I'm going to pass it. On. I've been talking for a second. Um, I just I think Harvey Dent was a great way to introduce those themes to the story. I absolutely agree. Lex, can you launch us into the Joker and why you liked his camp villainy? This is exactly what I want from him. Joker was serving the ultimate camp villain in this. Like when we first get to see him like borderline brain dead in Arkham because he has no purpose. Like all he wants to do is just ruin Batman's life. 
I think that that's hilarious. I think that the fact that when Batman retired, he was like, I don't want to do bad things anymore. There's no fun in it anymore. That's hilarious. And when we see his like smile in prison, when he sees that Batman's come back, that like sent chills through me. I was like, oh, here we go. Here's the villain we signed up for. This man is crazy. He has mind control lipstick. That is the most wonderful thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Terrifying, but wonderful at the same time. That's exactly I what argue, I signed up for. I would argue that most lipstick is mind control lipstick, but that's beside the point. <laughs> that's true. He did pick a real sexy shade of red. So when when he woke up and his first word as, as seeing Batman was darling, mm-hmm. that was <gasps> that like you shivers. The, the intense relationship those two share is, yes. you know, metaphorically like that of lovers they need each other they they pray off of each other i also love that his introduction goes against you know like batman comes back he starts stopping crime so you're like oh was the government wrong to like completely shut them out but the joker coming back solely because batman was there and you know causing all that havoc killing all those people it introduces that moral ambiguity to the overall thematics of that story and keeps you like just like real life does keeps you saying like okay but i don't think it's that simple i don't think it's that easy and i love having a villain that personifies that so so perfectly well and just from character standpoint their final showdown where batman finds the 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 quote-unquote like the perfect way to take care of him is not to kill him but just to paralyze him and joker says well I'm not going to stand for that and kills himself anyway, just so no one will know that Batman never had the gall. I thought that was one of the best ways their story has ever been concluded in any, any media ever. That was literally insane. Yeah. It is the ultimate finale for those two characters. And I also love that it sets up leading into issue four. And I think we can talk about Superman as a villain, of this story, like as an antagonist, I guess yeah. of this story. And, but with the death of the Joker, the police redouble their efforts under the new police commissioner to hunt the Batman. And I, I love Jim Gordon. I love the bat signal. I love the, that cooperation, but there is something so special about Batman on the run from the cops, still trying to pull off being Batman. Like when he shows up at the scene of the crime to stop Joker and he has to fight through the cops to get down to stop Joker because they're trying to set up a sting to catch Batman. It rules so hard. And then just like you were saying, and to have Superman be this stand in for the system to then have those efforts of the police force like redoubled in order to be that system is great and i mean it's also such a poignant critique of reagan's america and the militarization of the police in mm-hmm. america at that time this is when Re- reagan declares a war on drugs which ultimately ends up being a war on the cities of america right mm-hmm. reagan villainizes places like gotham places like real life new york city places like washington dc places like Los Angeles, all of a sudden have a police force with military-grade weaponry and a blank check to perpetuate violence and arrest non-white individuals in these Mm -hmm. areas. And to have that come into this comic, 
in a way where this militarized police force is standing in the direct way of Batman preventing harm that these villains want to perpetuate is just a fascinating reminder, not only of the time it's in, but sadly everything that has come about in America because of Mm -hmm. the choices made in that time period. Like this book is both incredibly of its time and incredibly prescient. We have the ongoing, and this might be something for the next section about the craft of this story, but the ongoing narrative from the news anchors and the many TV screens reporting, conflicting reports on what's going on with Batman. That feels so true to today. And just the the mass exposure we have to every single moment of news and everything having an agenda, everything being for the sole purpose of keeping your eyes glued to their space and their ad revenue rather than actually reporting and informing Mm -hmm. to see the seeds of that in 1986 and see how they've grown into today's world was fascinating, frankly. I think that's an incredibly astute observation. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's what the people come here for. Also a little depressing, but you know what? That that's, that's the point. (laughs) Listen, we're in a good enough mental space to get depressed, right? Isn't well, that the theme of this episode? <laughs> For Patreon viewers, you'll get that joke afterwards. Yeah, a little uh, wibbly wobbly timey wimey that we've done. <gasps> you did the thing. You did the you did the thing. I did the thing, folks. Alexis, I need you to talk about the last antagonist, Superman. Ugh. Wild. Also, okay, I just got to say off the front, little tiny gangly Superman after the nuke went off was hilarious. That made me really laugh really hard, Yo, and I felt bad I loved, for laughing. I loved Ozempic Superman. I thought that was really oh cool. Oh my gosh, it was Ozempic Core Superman. Hilarious. Funniest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Just because he looked so ill. You know what he reminded me of? He reminded me of the Hercules movie when Hercules has to jump in the water to save Meg's soul. That's what he reminded me of. You that, are exactly okay. right. I wonder mm-hmm. if that's actually something they pulled from. Probably. He looked exactly like him. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Probably no connection. <laughs> You're fine. Yeah. This is this is so fun when I can't see your faces. I know. I feel like I'm in timeout a little bit. Like I'm not allowed to enjoy your faces anymore. Um, but we're getting we're very being very productive. Um, but no, Superman, I feel like This is kind of a theme that I enjoy a little bit, where Superman is taking his do-goodery so far that he doesn't know where to draw the line of his own opinions on things, if that makes sense. Let me live! Let me live, Clark! (laughs) No. No. (laughs) Not while I wear the Gucci boots. No. For real. Ronald Reagan said we can't play anymore. I have to take you in. I'm sorry. Um, but no, I think it's very Alexis, funny. Hmm? remember that movie that mom and dad love called Legend of the Falls with Brad Pitt and his long cowboy hair? And Probably. there's an old man that has a stroke halfway through that movie. And the big finale is him sitting on his porch and he goes, screw the government. <laughs> that is exactly 
the Dark Knight Returns. That is exactly what Batman does in issue four of this. Superman shows up and he's like, I'm here to collect your taxes. And Libertarian <laughs> Batman goes, Screw the government! And then they fight. I can't wait till I'm the one who's in charge of taking care of senile dad and then I have to relive that scene. While trying You're to wrangle be Carrie him Kelly. Into take- oh, I am. I know. That, that that's true. This is just me and dad while dad's having a fever dream in his 70s. <laughs> that is so true. That's exactly what's happening. Dad just thinks that he's seen now Batman. <sighs> like when Bless Batman me. was holding the hunting rifle, you had to be like, there's our dad. Yep. I I really did. I wasn't going to say it on the internet, but you know, here we are. <laughs> hey, at least you're prepared now. It's true. Nobody ever show him this ever. <laughs> If he all of a sudden is senile old man Adam Taylor riding on a horse, it's over for you bitches. <laughs> oh. Heaven help us. Reading reading through this part, I know so many people have criticisms of Frank Miller's use of Superman, especially in this book, just depicting him as a blind government stooge. And I think I think, you know, I, I understand where they're coming from, but I think a lot of people have the um the tendency to be very, very protective of the characters they cherish most and they want them to always be the character that they see them as in their head and how they I how they envision them. But I think that Frank what Frank Miller does here with Superman was very um poignant for the um the, how the character was written at the time and how what the character had become. There's a a line from Super Gods that I've been reading where Grant Morrison talks about the irony of this um superhero who had started out as a socialist hero for the working class turning into the biggest um government propagandist icon during the during the war and then never turning back from that and definitely going into the 70s and the 80s that's what superman had kind of become we're starting in we're going into the burn rare burn era at this point and that superman was very much that yo ho it's the american way truth justice in the american way Forever and always, the end, bottom line. And he was that character for a good chunk of time. And he has been used as that character before. He'll probably be used as it again. Uh, and it's just, I think the the use of him in the story specifically for this purpose makes it a take on the character that I'm perfectly fine with. Because I think it serves the story in a way that this, the story needed. The story absolutely needed Superman to be this character. I also think it is perfectly okay to write to a theme. You know, like Mm -hmm. I often think that people in desiring a badge for their continuity knowledge refuse to accept that a book is writing to a theme rather than to a character wiki. And it is perfectly okay to say for this story, I am going to use these characters as larger symbols because what are superheroes if not iconography for larger themes and larger symbols? And if Frank Miller chooses to take one specific aspect of each of these characters' iconography and smash them against each other in an incredibly poignant way, not only for 1986, but again, for 2024, I do not see that as an issue. This book does not propose to say these are the only aspects of these characters that should ever be or have ever been touched upon, but they are the themes that we are exploring in our larger context here. Exactly. 
I it, if it it opens up a conversation which I think should be allowed. I think the conversation is the important part. And it's like, if you're reading this book for Superman, yeah, you're probably going to be disappointed, but you should look at what the book is trying to tell you instead. You also might want to look at the cover of the book. <laughs> I'm not, I'm going to throw it that out there. That might you know? be if... a giveaway with this one, you know, Super- it happens. He's, he's on one of those covers. I, I think that cover for issue four is one of the wildest things I've ever seen in my life because it's just Superman standing there. Batman's like, I got this big sword. I got a giant sword and a big gun. I, I think had that. I had that single issue before I sold all my single issues. That's wild. That's wild of you. It, it was a good one. It was a good one. I got it for ten dollars. <gasps> Can we talk about the the uh, design of Batman's bat in this? I think it's hilarious. The chubby little bat. <laughs> fat bat. It's fat bat because he's old. <laughs> Batman he's said, "I'm a square now." I'm a square now. My bat's going to be a square now. <laughs> I, it's it's so there's there's a lot that this book does very well. well. From that aesthetic side, I love what this book. I love that this book touches on aging the way that it does because I mm-hmm. love that Batman is this older character. And there's definitely themes in here about like you know fears of getting older, fears of being impotent, fears of being unable to affect change. But he just doesn't let it stop him. He embraces it, and this rusty dusty old man from up still manages to get it done and i love that that's one of my favorite things about this book frank you, you said frank miller didn't know people were gonna love grandpa batman and i adore grandpa batman i think that so much of the charm of this batman comes from the introduction of carrie kelly yes i was so enraptured with carrie kelly on this read through i have never had a single thought about carrie kelly prior to this specific read through Mm -hmm. i don't know why i this is my fifth time reading the dark knight returns and this is the one where i realized like this is a batman and robin story and that's why it works if this batman is 30 years older than or 20 years older than he was is usually that means that this is 1966's batman as an old man and that Mm -hmm. batman was always paired with his robin and there were so many moments where this batman was tender and relied upon robin and you got to see why it worked why Batman's darkness needs to be balanced out with Robin's lightness, but then also how Batman provides something for an enterprising person like Carrie Kelly to put her energy behind. I -hmm. also thought it was so interesting how much of Tim Drake was in Carrie Kelly as like the Batman or as the Robin that follows the death of Jason Todd and pulls Batman out of a slump by being like the bright energetic Robin that Batman needs at his time. Like this book predicted so much of what Batman would become. Alexis, I don't know if you know this, this book said that Jason Todd was going to die before DC a few years later killed Jason Todd. (gasps) So he just said that to say that. 
Yeah, yeah, he just killed Jason Todd just to kill Jason yeah. Todd. And then DC was like, that was a great idea he had. We oh, could kill that kid. I, I never terrible. put two and two together in my head. I never did the timeline on that. I always just assumed that Jason was dead because, you know, Jason's the one that dies. I just, hold. No, I learned something no that today. was, listen, that was the spirit of Apollo that Frank Miller <laughs> had there. And I, I just, like, we joked about it, but the line where Batman is holding Carrie Kelly after she almost good falls soldier. to her death, and he's just, he just tells her, good soldier. And that's, that's the kind of panel that people will take out of context and really hate, right? Because they're like, it's a bat mm-hmm. family, not a bat army. But within the context of the book, it demonstrates Batman as a person who is unable to relate in a traditionally tender way, but still has that urge and that desire to be there for these people, Mm -hmm. right? Like this Batman cannot quite look at Carrie Kelly as Carrie Kelly, but he can look at her as Robin, a person that he cares about and a person that he understands that he needs to nurture and take care of. And so he can show that he can teach her how to ride a horse. He can teach her, how to be Robin. He can be impressed by her computer hacking skills. She, she's like the iconic early nineties kid protagonist. That's like good with tech and also very radical has dope (laughs) digs. Yo, Mm -hmm. like I just, I loved her. I loved everything about Carrie Kelly this time through. She was far and away the standout of the dark Knight returns for me on this read through. I, I would definitely agree. I, Lexi, I know you're going to have a lot to talk about with Carrie because I know you loved Carrie. I just wanted to point out that between this and Kingdom Come, another book that came out in the 80s and that we also covered recently, there's a big theme of aging superheroes that have become kind of jaded with the world trying to, you know, guide a younger generation, that younger generation being the reason they come back to do it and what keeps them going. And also I think that kind of comes through with the um the Sons of Batman later on, trying to guide misguided youth. There's definitely a fun and noticeable theme of generations that come into play during this era. And, you know, with everything that was happening in the 80s, I think it's easy to see why. Just that disappointment with the way things are and that concern for the future and that reminder of why people keep fighting. Sorry, Dallas, go ahead. To quote friend of the podcast, Matt Draper, who has recently texted me and said, there's been a lot of Matt Draper erasure on this podcast recently, which I can only be led to believe is just us not bringing him up every episode. Yeah. But his, the dark Knight returns video from, Based on the quality of the video, I can only assume the prehistoric ages. Uh, This is definitely proto-Matt Draper here. But he touches on the term apotheosis for what The Dark Knight Returns does to Batman. And I think both in a metatextual sense, uh, within Mm -hmm. the comic book world, this absolutely takes Batman from superhero to, to quote Grant Morrison's book, to super god. Like Batman becomes a symbol that gets to be larger than a character and imprinted all across everything. But also within the context of this book, all of these ragtag people that start to get on board with the symbology of Batman lead us towards that endpoint where Batman is okay with letting the man die and the symbol of the bat live on. 
Like Batman becomes larger than a man over the course of this book. And Carrie Kelly and then the the Batman mutants and then even the new commissioner all slowly realize that Batman is so much more than the frail man in front of them. And I think to have that as the underlying theme of your aging Batman tale is so special because no matter when these characters, these characters will live beyond us, right? Like the creators and the people that love them will age, will die. But these characters, even if Batman doesn't live as Bruce Wayne, the character Batman forever, I think this archetype and this kind of character is something that will stick with humanity for as long as humanity is around by many different names. Very well said. Um, I'm going to pass Lexi. I want you to talk about Carrie. We should probably then jump into art and then into listener questions after that. I can kind of mesh Carrie and the art together a little bit because I love her design. Like, I think that she is so iconic. When she first came on with her jazzy little sunglasses that she was wearing, and she was like, yeah, I do what I want. I instantly liked her. I didn't even know who she really was when we started. Like, when Batman initially saves her, I was like, cool, good for Batman. Good for him. And then to see her put on her little Robin outfit, I was like, oh, good Lord. This is iconic. Like, she rocks that little outfit better than any of those little boys ever could. (laughs) She knows what's up. And just her design. Like, she just looked so good. Her hair was perfect. Her little green little elf shoes were hilarious. I loved her little out. She just was so wonderful. And how she just like decided that she was just going to be Robin. I was like, name a more iconic character. She was just like, you know what? Batman was kind of wheezing a little. He might need a little bit of help. He's kind of old. I might need to bring his walker in the Batmobile. So iconic. She was amazing. I loved every ounce of her while she was on the page. I loved how... She just was willing to dive right in with Batman and how he, how I feel like it kind of nursed back his emotions a little bit, like brought him back to reality and made him realize that life is worth living after losing his last little Robin. So I feel like she was, she was very good for grouchy Batman, if you ask me. I loved her. She was great. And I love the art. I thought it was fabulous. It's very non-traditional. And I think sometimes that's off-putting to some people, but I think this does it very well. This is, (laughs) I think when you, when Frank Miller has to kind of restrain himself a bit, it works really, really well. Cause we've, I've seen Frank Miller be kind of um, unleashed and chaotic and it's not something I'm terribly fond of. But I really think that when he tries to be simple and grounded and effective, it works. I think the the art in this book is great. Dallas, I know you were talking on Twitter earlier about the book's unusual 16 grid structure. That is so crazy. So I, yeah. I'm making a comic book right now. And I every time I have to ask an artist to do more than six panels on a page, I feel like I am committing a crime. 
because that is so much drawing to do. And Frank Miller, listen, he is both the writer and the penciler of this. And so he can be mean to himself. But 16 panels per page is bananas. It makes this book so dense in a good way. Like you get so much out of The Dark Knight Returns because there are so many little panels. And I think sometimes when we talk about a panel grid, unless it is the clean, very defined nine panels almost all the time of Watchmen, and even Watchmen doesn't follow this as strict as like homages to Watchmen do. But like you can look at a page and understand that it is made up of 16 squares and some of those squares have become rectangles, right? And sometimes they get split like an eighth note on a piano. But I think the visually dense pages of The Dark Knight Returns make it feel loud and bombastic and overcrowded in a very 1980s way. Like it feels Mm -hmm. that we're going to a bright lights and neon 1980s mall when you're reading The Dark Knight Returns. And so much of what makes Frank Miller amazing is the ink work from Klaus Johnson. Mm -hmm. I love when Frank and Klaus collaborate. We will absolutely be reading their Daredevil at some point. Alexis, these guys, before they did this, they cut their teeth making Daredevil iconic. And it was incredible. And their art sings together. For newer comic book fans, the idea of an inker might seem a little foreign because with the birth of digital comics and digital art in comics, they've kind of gone by the wayside. But back when comics were a much more tactile medium, the there were two jobs, a penciler, the person who sketched out all this stuff, and the inker who solidified the dark lines that were going to be printed. And it when it truly sang, you had two people with distinct styles working next to each other. So you have the incredibly frenetic and exaggerated proportions of Frank Miller's manga and styled art. And yes, Frank Miller was an enormous fan of manga. If you th- don't think that the Lone Wolf and Cub homage of this book is on purpose, please go look at who drew all the covers for Dark Horse's reprints of the (laughs) Lone Wolf and Cub comic books. Frank Miller is an enormous weeb, specifically for Lone Wolf and Cub, but manga in general. So his very exaggerated manga-style art with the really sharp, clean lines from Klaus Johnson are immaculate. And I would be so remiss to not mention Lynn Varley's watercolors on this. Oh my God. I think that that horse page that Alexis mentioned without Lynn Varley's watercolors of the blues and blacks clashing next to each other. It's not the same page at all. The watercolor is amazing. I cut you off and what were you going to say? No, I was about to say, I actually want to do, I know it's normally Dallas's art color corner, but I kind of, I'm going to do Anne's Color Corner today because I found this wonderful, wonderful piece by H.W. Thurston on the Comics Journal. It's called The Dark Knight Returns. Art makes sense if you force it to. And it's a really, really wonderful breakdown of all the art in this book. And I was really, uh, really taken back by the the coloring section because they make a very astute observation that I hadn't even considered. And, you know, when you think about Batman, you think about like Batman's color palette, you think, four main colors you think blue black yellow and gray 
And when you pay attention to what colors mean in the story, you notice very quickly there are like four main narrative characters in the story that have narrative bubbles. There's Superman Clark Kent and his thought bubbles are blue. Jim Gordon, his are black. Carrie Kelly, hers are yellow. And Batman's are gray. And there's, you know, there's a lot of depth that you can apply to those. But I think it really symbolizes, um, as, as Thurston puts here, kind of speculates that they all symbolize something different about who Batman is as a character and what he is thematically meant to represent. And you can see those changes happen in Bruce as he goes through the story, because he starts the, the um, book in that classic Batman, blue, yellow, black, and gray costume. But there's that moment that happens when the we find out who's been selling the guns to the mutants, and Batman picks up this um, the body of that senator, I mean, the general who killed himself, and the page is just splashed with the American flag, and Batman is in this blue hue. And then the next time we see him, all the blue is gone from his costume. All that that optimism and hope for the system is just completely, completely left him. And then that yellow is gone too, but that's when Carrie Kelly enters the picture. And she enters as this bright, enthusiastic um, vision for the future. And that's that's always what that yellow is supposed to symbolize is the the idea that things can be better, that things that there can be a the idea there can be a brighter tomorrow. And Batman being gray, of course, the morally gray actions that he has to take to, you know, to do what Batman needs to do. And Jim Gordon's very black, realistic, grim look from the street level of the world. I think there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot that I can't even go into now because we have to make sure this episode stays under an hour and a half. But there's also, if you talk about um, one of the one of the other really cool observations that this writer made, I thought, was the fact that every time we see um, black and red together, there it's you know the shadowy mutants, or when we see the the army troops, Superman, the missile, Clark's heartbeat. It's the it's it's the promise of violence, and what whether that what that violence is going to do. We don't know, but we know that it's there and it's threatening and it's present. And I thought that was also, it, it, it kind of took my breath away to think about. I think there's so much depth to this book that I did not get to explore because I read this piece afterwards. And I want to go back through and look at, really, really dive into what the colors mean. Like, I want to think if they all have purpose, what is that purpose? I, I thought that was just wonderful. And I wanted to point that out. Everyone should go check out that article. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I absolutely. Yeah. Will. Would you send that to us? Anne? Absolutely. Maybe I will. post a link on the Twitter. I will post a link on the Twitter sphere later. Also Dallas, another thing this article talked about that I loved, you mentioned that the, um, the panels hit like eighth notes on a piano. You talk about splitting a page into 16, 16 panels, Four beats per line. It reads like a musical piece. It has a rhythm to it. The book reads like a song. It uh, Frank Miller does not get enough praise for how visual of a comic book storyteller he is. Mm -hmm. We often talk about Frank Miller, the writer, but Frank Miller, the artist, is at the heart of his most bombastic and wonderful moments. Like, I know that this is not something Alexis has read. This is not this episode. But when I think about Bullseye and Electra's issue of Daredevil, I think it's 121, uh, maybe 124. But either way, I'm not going to say what happens because we are going to read that with Alexis. But the <laughs> visuals in that issue 
are astonishing and the visuals in the dark knight returns are astonishing frank miller knows how to create iconography like every splash page of the dark knight returns is something you want up on your wall and every page that is not a splash page is one of the most beautifully paced and intentional breakdowns of comic book beat storytelling that perfectly control how fast you experience various moments all of his characters are so broad and meaty in this way that old men become <laughs> like it feels like you're <laughs> hanging out with your grandpa after they kind of like beef out you know and it just it rules like everybody's got these heavy fists in this book and you can feel when they punch each other when batman lays out superman mm -hmm. with that hook oh that like there's a reason that the iconography of this book keeps getting repeated on the screen everyone wants to draw from the imagery of this book because frankly frankly <laughs> frank miller created iconography iconography like every single panel looks like a painting it's just so frenetic it's so powerful and it you can read this book without the words and that is so hard to accomplish absolutely um wow <laughs> yeah the dark yeah. knight returns Good book, folks. We barely scratched the surface, frankly. This book's incredible. I would be remiss if I didn't shout out a little scene that meant a lot to me this time around that has never meant a lot to me before, living in my specific neighborhood now, when Jim Gordon kept being grumpy mm -hmm. that he had to keep walking 10 minutes to go get one ingredient for dinner every single night. I have to do that every single night. And I felt so seen by A, that anger, but B, that joy when he realized that his wife was safe from the fire because she had gone out to go to a different grocery store because she felt embarrassed that she forgot to tell him about a second ingredient that was needed. And I've had that happen too, where I've gotten all the way home and my wife's gone, oh no, there's a second ingredient we need. <laughs> and, like... This just felt very New York. You could tell Frank Miller was living in New York when he wrote this. Mm -hmm. And it made me so happy. I love that. Do we want to roll into as many listener questions as we can get in the next 30 minutes? I think so. Yes. Okay. Let's do it. Perfect. Before we do that, we need to play our Patreon ad. Yep. That's right, folks. And after the ad... We are going to give our new $8 patron, Joshua Gomez, a specialized book recommendation on air. So stick around after the break. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Patreon of the Comics Collective, the weekly podcast where we read and discuss a collection of comic books or a graphic novel. I'm one of your hosts, Alexis. I'm Dallas. And I'm Anne. And we are here to talk with you today about our all-new Patreon starting in January 2024. 
yeah, it's going to be really, really cool. And listen, honestly, I'm going to level with all of you out there. <clears throat> I really need a reason to just hang in there with these two a little bit longer. So if you could please find it in your hearts to give us just a little bit extra every month, I would really, really appreciate it so, so much. I can't speak for them, but I personally would really, really appreciate it. Honestly, at this point, we either need a large sum of money or a large secret to keep us together. And I'm not ready for that kind of responsibility with a secret. Also, also, please, please, everyone, find it in the goodness of your heart to finally aid in these two teaching me how to play Dungeons and Dragons. They've been leading me on for a long-ass time. And, hey, we've got lots of fun perks that we're going to roll out. I mean, this year, our goal, we want to keep things nice and clean. We want to keep our episodes to a predictable amount of time so everyone knows what they're expecting from an episode of the Comics Collective. But we don't want to feel like we have to cut out all of our shenanigans. So we found a place where we're going to stick it all. Please join us on our Patreon for all the shenanigans, all the fun. Please join yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> where we stick it all. The Patreon. God damn, <laughs> damn it, Dallas. But first, see, you missed this. You missed this silly, goofy time. The tears for the Patreon are first and foremost at the $2 tier, early access to an ad-free version of the show. As soon as it's done editing, it's dropping on the Patreon. You don't have to wait till Wednesday mornings anymore. For $5 a month, you get early access of that ad-free show, and you also get a weekly extended after the credits chit-chat with Anne, Lexi, and Dallas. A closer to two-hour version of the show where we laugh, we joke, and we give you everything that of the classic comic books collective prior to Dallas's new tightened schedule regime at the $8 a month tier, you will get a one-time specialized shout out on the show and a live comic book recommendation in the show after you sign up. And for the exceptionally adventurous and affluent patrons of the comics collective we have the option for a 50 dollars a month tier where you will be added to a list of potential candidates for a dungeons and dragons one-shot adventure with the comics collective after one month at the 50 dollars tier your name will be added to the list once the list has hit four individuals we will run that two to three hour one shot where i will dm lexi and Anne. We'll play major characters and you and your friends, or perhaps you and some strangers, will get to hang out with us on a Discord call for an afternoon. So if any of those sound interesting to you, please go to patreon.com slash the comics collective and sign up now. All right. Anne, it is your job today to give Joshua Gomez his specialized shout out and recommendation on the air. What comic book do we have for Joshua Gomez? Joshua Gomez. I have an awesome comic for you. I read this last year for the first time. I didn't hear a single thing about this comic going into it. I just saw it pop up on my, my hoopla and I got it just because of the vibes. And I was blown away by the art in this book. It's larger than life. Some of the best action I've read in my entire life. The book is called Kali. K-A-L-I. It's by Daniel Friedman and Robert Samelin. It's from Dark Horse Comics. It is the story of this um, awesome biker, <laughs> this awesome biker chick in a post-apocalyptic world, think like Mad Max, who, after a fight 
finds out that she's been poisoned and has a day to live and a day to get vengeance on the people who caused her death. So it is a, an awesome story of a woman trying to get back at a world that wronged her, full of incredible explosive action, bombastic characters, and it's, it's such a sweet and easy read. I, I really need more and more people to check this comic out. And I think that if you're a fan of the show, you're going to love this comic. You're going to be a fan of this comic. So please check out Kali. It's a book not only about slay, but slay your enemies. Exactly. As Alexis, as Alexis is wont to say. Yes. <laughs> Lex, can you read our first question from Penny Green? And again, sure. we are trying to keep the shows at around an hour and a half. So we are so sorry if your question does not make the cut. We put them in in the order we get them. So if you want to make sure you are always on the show, email us as quickly as possible. And you will for sure get on because we we're getting more and more of these nowadays. Jeez, people like this Batman guy. <clears throat> um, <laughs> Dear Comics Collective, I'm here to ask the age old question. Is Batman facing forward, backward or twisted around to show both his boobs and butt at the same time? Sincerely, your Penny Green. Penny, that was hilarious. So, Lex, you might not know this. So. The very first cover where Batman is silhouetted jumping through the sky. Mm -hmm. You know that, Lex? Mm -hmm. um, people have been curious about whether he is facing away from or towards the camera in silhouette. Oh, okay. This is a fun game. So I need you to look at it's the classic blue mm -hmm. cover with the lightning and Batman mm -hmm. silhouetted. I, I just think, heard it in the chat. I think he is facing towards us but he is twisting his bottom to show off his ass as well as his boobs like penny green <laughs> let us know yeah no penny's for sure uh, right on that one um i also think that he's facing forward but just really really like hiking his knees up high so you can see his little booty cheeks like his his knees are almost touching his shoulders because he's so hunched over Bend over, oh. make your knees touch your elbows, says Batman. <laughs> mm -hmm. Y'all, it's the it's the left hand that gives it away. You can't, you wouldn't, if he was facing us, you wouldn't be able to see his thumb like that. He is facing away from us. That is, you know, that's canon. Listen, the animated movie said that that's the canon way that he's jumping. So I'm going with that, actually. By the way, the movie, not half bad. Peter Cullen voices Batman, and it's low-key the best, the best voicing I could have imagined. He does great in that role. Hmm. I'm going to throw it out there. I like this cover because Batman's legs are a little tiny. And as someone whose torso is longer than their legs, we need some representation. You do have I was have. never made That's aware cool. that I have short legs for how tall I am until at my wedding. We were well, but right before my wedding, we were sh shopping around at like a, a wedding expo. And this guy was like, get into the back of my limo. Get into the back of my limo. And we got in. And I was like, oh, man, I don't fit. My head touches the ceiling. And he's like, I have seen much taller men than you in here. You have an abnormally long torso. And I. No way. Yeah. And he was right. I now have to wear high-waisted pants to, like, even myself out. But I just, I went That's 21 weird. years without knowing that I looked that, I guess, no, 22 years without knowing that. I was disproportionate like this Batman here. And so I just, I like how little his legs are to his hey, torso. Look, 
Who cares if you got Johnny Bravo proportions? You're doing great. <laughs> that That's true. Look like Johnny Bravo. That's exactly right. I also have the same brain cells as Johnny Bravo. Next. Hey, hey baby. Hey, baby. Hey, baby, it's me, Johnny Bravo. Hello, Dark Nats. Firstly, hold over from last week. Not a question, just stating I love the new 52 Element Girl and Sandman 20 is one of my favorite single issues ever. Question number one. This is from Glenn Machette, by the way. Will we get Dark Knight Strike again? My eyes! And Dark Knight 3? It's okay. And the Golden Child on the Comics Collective? You know what, Glenn? Maybe. Matt Draper wants to do the Dark Knight Strikes again with us so bad. Oh, no. What? And, and Evan loves the Golden Child. So if there's enough clamor oh, for no. it from fans, we might have to read more Dark Knight books. Alexis, for context, they're all bad. Every time Frank Miller has come back to this universe, they've not been good. Why does Why does Matt want to do that to us? Between... This and Spawn, what, what is, why does Matt hate us? <gasps> he wants us to suffer. His Dark Knight Strikes Again video is actually fascinating, though. Okay. If you've never watched it. I, I haven't. I'm going to watch that at work this week. It's a great 25 minutes. Uh, there's a free oh, plug yeah. for you, Matt. Question number two from Glenn. Thoughts on the legacy of Carrie Kelly, the first female Robin. I think we said she slays, Glenn. She absolutely slays. She's awesome. She's awesome, but I think she she works well in this vacuum. I she I don't like need to see Carrie Kelly thrown into the um the modern Bat Fam. Like she popped up in the New Fifty Two for a second, like they were going to do something with her. I I honestly don't need it. We already got we the Bat Fam feels full at this point. Carrie Kelly serves a very specific purpose. I don't need her. I I, I mean I wouldn't object if we replaced I don't know like a Tim Drake with her or something. I'll not sorry Tim Drake fans. Um, but I I just don't need it. <laughs> Wasn't she into Mossy's run as like Damien's teacher? I don't know. <laughs> I think she, that happened. The last time I remembered her showing up, I think it was in the pages of Batman Eternal. It was either Batman Eternal or Batman and Robin Eternal. She po- showed up dressed as Robin at a, a trick-or-treat party or something. That hmm. was the last time I remembered seeing Carrie Kelly. I definitely don't need her in main continuity. I kind of just like her in this story. Because also, like, she's such a product of her time. Like, she is an yeah. 80s teenager. And so mm-hmm. she will feel not herself in a modern setting. Um, And then question number three from Glenn. And I think, Anne, you can answer this best. Isn't it weird that Miller predicted Jason's death? <laughs> Jesus. Yes, very weird. Very <laughs> said, I want... weird. Miller said, I want this kid dead. Clean shot. <laughs> Straight to the head. I I'm just gonna throw it out there. Most killable Robin. Like that's for sure. You know he's been killed so many times. You have to start wondering. Like, I mean, everyone agrees this is the one to get rid of. <laughs> if I speak, if you speak, you will join me in Bat Fam Purgatory. I think we need to clean that house up. So. Oh, Anne, can you read the next question, please? Absolutely, I can. Lexi, do you have any other thoughts? I heard you sp- speak up for a second. No, I agree. That's hilarious that they, he killed him and then they, then they made it real. That's hilarious. That is some funny news oh. to me. Lex, in, in, oh, go ahead. Lex, do you know how Jason Todd died? 
they had a fan Did vote. They blow him up? They had him captured by the Joker, and then they let yeah. the children vote. And the children voted to kill him. That is terrifying. The children Whoever of America children voted right. to kill Robin. What, what generation is this? Because this might say, it might explain a lot. Gen X. Oh, that's right. I need, um, I need the meta story where Jason finds out that's the reason he died. I, I need to see this, this little man break. Okay, going on to the next question. This next question comes from, I lost it. How did that happen? Amanda. Hi, my name is Amanda. I'm from Brazil. My question is, do you guys think Batman actually killed the Joker in the story? Because some important characters have thought bubbles with specific specific colors and Joker talks in white speech bubbles like everyone else. But after his neck is snapped, he speaks in gray bubbles, which is the same color as the bubbles used to show what Batman is thinking. And that is the only instance in the whole comic where a speech bubble has a different color and it may indicate that Batman actually killed the Joker and is in denial, actually talking to himself as if it was the Joker talking to him. Bum, bum, bum. I fantastic. I think it's pretty cool. I read it. I read this question before I got to that scene in the book. I don't quite see the interpretation, but I want to see it so bad. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think the book wants us to think it's a suicide for sure. But like, this is a real fun fan theory to chew on. What do you think, Lex? Do you think Batman killed the Joker and is just trying to convince himself that he didn't? I don't think so but i really like that idea i think that that's very fun but i don't think that that was the intention at the time i you know i i talked a bit about this book having a lot of different thoughts but not giving a conclusive answer to all of them i think this might still be intentional but still not give us an answer it could just be one of those things where it's like hey what if we want to kind of play into the fact that maybe maybe bruce did this maybe he didn't I think that would be a big brain play and it's either in my perspective, it's either we pretend like all the colors mean something or they don't either all of them do or none of them do. And so if this is just another chance of the book to offer us with a morally gray or narratively gray section, I think it's doing its job perfectly. I think that's a very interesting take on it. I was excited to read that one. That is probably my favorite question of the week. So shout yeah, out that Amanda. Was, that is a very good question. That rules. That makes me rethink that section. That's been tickling my brain all week. So thank you, Amanda. <laughs> uh, Lexus, can you read the next two screenshots are one email from Anonymous. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was skimming it and I think I know who Anonymous is, but I'll leave it anonymous. Uh, it's impossible dear... to know. I know. I know. It's like a riddle. Uh, Dear Collective, long-time listener, big fan of your stuff, but I feel like every week I'm asking myself, where is the Evan of it all? You know, he's so smart and clever, and he sounds really hot and cool. Honestly, I would just be honored to shake his hand. You should also pay him. You know, Evan, I said it once. Um, Evan is like... Evan loves to pretend that he's not a member of this show. Like, I like to pretend that I'm new to comic books. Um... It's not true. <laughs> but yeah, Alexis, Alexis, you've done 200 graphic. You've read 200 graphic novels. I know. I, it's my little safety blanket that I really clutch tight around me so people can't get mad at me for my opinions. Um, I'm very fragile. 
I know I don't honestly. Act that it's game, a big brain I'm play. Fragile. Fragile. Um. You, anyway, continuing. <laughs> continuing. Anyway, The Dark Knight Returns is a book a lot of people like to try to classify as overrated, or sometimes just straight up bad. I think this comes from a place of misunderstanding the intent of the book and frustrations over the main mainstream appeal of such a book. I'm sure you've already addressed whether or not you agree with these claims, but what do you think of what do you think is behind people's quick reaction to hate this book? Secondly, I do agree with the internet with the internet that TDKR is not a good book to start with if you're new to Batman. What are some Batman books that you think are great for new readers? My controversial takes are Batman Fortnite, No Man's Land, and Batman Superman Public Enemies. Have fun and pay Evan. Anonymous. Oh, thanks, Evan. Um, yeah, thanks, Evan. <laughs> thanks, Anonymous. <laughs> thanks, Anonymous. I think that first question is is really interesting because I you you see it a lot with things that get really popular. Because I've seen every time something gets big, you're going to have people that want to detract from it because you know, everyone's talking about, so it's going to have very loud vocal detractors. I think the dark Knight suffers from it, especially because we've been seeing this book adapted into almost every single Batman adaptation since this book has come out. This book has defined who Batman has been in the comics. It's defined who he's been in the TV shows. It's defined who he's been in the movies. Um, We've seen two different movies just in the last decade that have tried to adapt aspects of this book from the dark Knight rises to Batman V Superman. Everyone wants a piece of this, this cake. And it's, it's that popular phrase, um, great artist steal. Everyone wants to steal the book that works. And of course you do. It works. Everyone loves it. Why would you not want to replicate that? I do think you get into the risk of, you know, oversaturating it and, some of that original appeal of the story starts to get lost over time. And I think that's what we've done. I think we've creeped into the part where it's okay to do revisionist history with how well this book was received and how well this book did and how well this book executed everything because people are so frustrated of seeing the same old, same old from Batman again, because there's so many different ways you can play this character. And we've just, we don't get that variety anymore because this book kind of squished that like a cockroach. We just, it just doesn't happen. We decided, we decided like there is one way to write this character. And so one way we will write this character forever. And people who are longtime fans of the character definitely, I think, get jaded over that after a while. So I think it's understandable how this happens. But the one that frustrates me the most is the ones that are like trying to revise it where it's like, oh, The Dark Knight Rises was never a seminal Batman book where it's like I that is one of the only opinions I can say that is not subjective that is objectively untrue because we have seen how this book has affected batman over the years i think that's yeah and those those are my thoughts i have so many thoughts but we have to get through so many questions lex you have not read all the batman but you've certainly read some of the batman many people talk about this as the best batman comic of all time do you feel that that makes it overrated perfectly rated or underrated still you know what? I might sit in the perfectly rated category on that one. I really enjoyed this. I would read this again on my own in in the wild. Which Between this often. 
between this and Hellboy, it has been nothing but W's for Dallas and Alexis. I know. 2024 is the year that Lexi did not even... I didn't turn over a new leaf. I bought a whole new leaf. I said, you come with me now. You did. I like these comics. Well, welcome to Boys, 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 Alexis. (laughs) And I'm so sorry. I converted her. I (sighs) didn't mean to lure her over to my side with big grumpy I liked her DC villains last week. (laughs) It's been nothing but bangers for three straight weeks. <laughs> yeah, and it's because two of them were DC Dallas. I just want that to be known. I want. I want that somewhere mm, famous. Famous DC character Hellboy. Um, I said two of them. Two. We did three. Wait. Two. Mm. I said two. Hell's mm. putting words in my mouth. Sounds it's okay. Like false advertising to me. And I here's my hot take, anonymous. I don't think it's too bad for people to pick this up as their first Batman comic because how many people first. how many people are actually being exposed to Batman the character for the first time through comic books in the year 2024? Mm-hmm. I knew who Batman was before I had memories. I have no memory of learning who Batman was. And so I am aware of him. I have watched the animated series. I've watched every single movie, live action movie of him. I have watched most of the animated movies of him. And I think a lot of people are in a very similar boat to me. I did all that before I read any comic books. And so honestly, picking up The Dark Knight Returns year one long and Long Halloween and Hush, all of those but one are great comics. And frankly, I enjoyed slash loved all of them as first time readers. And then I only got a more complicated relationship with them later on when I returned to them with opinions about the craft. And I think sometimes us who have such complicated feelings about the role of this book and how it affects the larger Batman mythos and how the craft shines through, forget that some people just want to read a badass Batman who's going to kick the ass of villains that they know and then also fight Superman who they know at the end of it. Like this book is going to give you all the Batman iconography you could ever want as someone who has fallen in love with this character through the movies. There's my spicy take for the day. I, I can understand people not wanting this to be someone's first Batman book for the sole purpose of like, Hey, just, just, you know, this isn't all Batman is or should be. I understand that perspective. But I will also say that I start, this was one of my first Batman comics ever. It was, my my first Batman comic was actually Nightfall, which <laughs> had a, a very similar tone. <laughs> Why is that so fun? Listen, that my ex- first comic explains exactly who you are. Exactly who you are as a person <laughs> is born out of the fact that you went, I want to break the bat. No. <laughs> legitimately my first batman superman and spider-man stories all focused around those three heroes dying or getting their ass kicked and i need to be psychoanalyzed for that because holy shit (laughs) jumped in with nightfall the death of superman and spider-man the other (laughs) one of my formative comic experiences was watching spider-man get his eye ate he got like the other one of these things is not like the other (laughs) The death of Spider, the death of Superman, the Dark Knight Returns, and that famous story, Spider-Man: The Other. 
I listen. I was looking for what books did these heroes die in? Because I'm like, I... Superman. Superman died. Did Spider Man die? And the internet's like, you didn't go. Yeah, with it just happened. Raven's last hunt. No, why would I do that? My library, my library had the other. My library didn't have Craven's Last Hunt. Why would I do that? I knew he came back from that one. I didn't know he came back from the other. I went with the other. And it's why I'm, ad- I'm addicted to Morlin. That's why he's the coolest guy in the universe. That Are you seeing you the are. pieces start to come together now? Are you understanding who I, I am also, as a person? I also love that you wrote, you read the three Doomsday books. Doomsday, Doomsday with Luchador font. Doomsday with Victorian gay man font. I'm telling you, it's the best type of villain you can be. Just (laughs) no, no subtle. I know people that use subtext and they're all cowards. Just have the villain beat them to death with their bare hands. That's, that's all you need. That's, that is the guy. That is the villain. Joker, Riddler, all, all pansies. Just go straight for it. Just kick some ass. Punch him in his stupid face i frankly what was the question agree. no you answered it you answered oh, did it. I? okay cool yeah um also evan's right superman batman public enemies is also a great place to start i think batman universe is the coolest to start and my one i'm gonna both sides this i am sad that the dark knight returns so quickly put a bullet in the head of Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams globetrotting James Bond Batman. And the only other person who's ever done that was Grant Morrison, and they made my favorite Batman run of all time. So, like, I understand the pain of The Dark Knight Returns killed my baby because I love shirtless, hairy chest James Bond Batman that existed right before this. He will be famous in my brain forever. Rip. Alexis, Batman has a sword fight in the sand dunes with his mask still on, but his shirt off. And he's got a Harry Burt Reynolds chest. And then he goes and makes love to Talia al Ghul after. It's crazy. The 1970s Batman is nuts. Hmm. Is that how we got (sighs) Damien? That is how we got Damien. (laughs) Oh, hell. Well, now I understand. Oh, okay. We have three questions left. Do we think we can race through them? We can if we go fast. Okay, let's go. Go fast. Go fast. Dallas, you're first. Mm, nice of you all to cover one of those nice comics from back before they were political. I'm sure you had a lot to say along those lines. But I have more important fish to fry, namely Carrie Kelly. Do you consider her a real Robin? Whatever that means to you in terms of the other Robins or an anomalous outlier. And also, what do you think it means that even Frank Miller himself was crafting his serious, grimdark, brutal Batman magnum opus? He felt compelled to craft a Robin for him. Anyway, keep up the great pods and keep it sexy slash goofy. That's always the tone, Joshua Gomez. So... (laughs) Is Carrie Kelly a real Robin? And why do we think it rules that Robin is in The Dark Knight Returns? I kind of already spoke to this, so I want to hear from you too. Um, I think that Carrie Kelly is definitely a bat- is def- Yeah, she's a Batman. Uh, no, uh, definitely a Robin. And I feel <laughs> like she deserves to exist. And I love that she does because she brought Batman back to being happy. And I will stand by that statement. Grumpy Batman needed a happy Robin. Thank you. If there was a trivia question saying how many Robins have there been, have there been, name them all, I would not name Carrie Kelly because Elseworlds, whatever, but I don't, 
as far as I'm concerned, she's a real Robin because she was a Robin. I love her. Um, and I think it's important because part of the thematic, you know, aspect of Batman is it is grimdark, but there's also hope. There's also optimism. It should be at the heart of everything that DC does in some way, shape or form. And Robin is that. So I don't care if you think the concept is goofy. You're goofy. Your face is goofy. Have a Robin. I desperately want to read Dark Victory and Robin Year One on this podcast. And I mean, there are those are two books right there with creatives that I don't want to praise. But I yep. love both of those books. I want Alexis to read both of those books so bad so she can know my favorite Robin, Dick Grayson, before he was Nightwing. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Thanks for the question, Josh. Um, going on to the next question from Keith. I'm so delighted you're reading one of my favorite Batman books that truly solidified my love of the character. Oftentimes books that everyone says are great are just okay because they are influential, but their legacy or influence has been copied to the point where they aren't as original as they initially were. But The Dark Knight Returns is so well written and the art and story are so strong and unique. I feel this one holds up. My question regards the career of Mr. Frank Miller. After this, he created Batman Year One, another classic, and then returned to this universe with The Dark Knight Strikes Again. I feel this book is almost a parody and tears down the idea that Batman has evolved beyond the need for a one man from the first book into a symbol, but he then returns to the cow. The art inconsistencies and the events of 9-11 severely harm the book being considered a classic, but it remains a unique gaze into the development of this man's career. Does Dark Knight Returns feel like it should be in a universe of itself to you guys, or does it work best as a tale of the main universe Batman? Huge fan of huge fan as always and love the show and all of you guys, Keith. Um yeah, Keith, this is a continuity free zone. This is a continuity free safe place for me. I am actually legally not required mm, to ever I if no acknowledge the oh, continuity is real. <laughs> um, I feel like I might be a, the least. Lexi has no thoughts on statement. continuity. No, Kate. I kind of do have. I have opinions, but I haven't read a ton of Batman. But I feel like I like this as main universe Batman. So I'll just put that out. Th- I like this Batman. I'll I'll claim him. We can keep him. But I don't know how other people feel about that. <laughs> I I feel like the moment that Reagan left office, we missed the opportunity for this to be made universe Batman. But that's just me. There, I think that um, I think it works well as a standalone tale. I don't need this to be the definitive way that the Batman story ends. But I think it's just it, it's perfect in and of itself. I personally, I just don't care about the sequels to me they didn't happen i just don't read them which is you know if you don't like a book you're allowed to pretend it doesn't exist you don't have to talk about how much you hate it all the time just a note for twitter um yeah it's i think it works perfectly in and of its own i don't need it to be anything more hell yeah lex read us jorge's question you got it boss uh, hi, Comics Collective. Greetings from Mexico. Here's my questions. Or here's my question. Even though TDKR is a seminal story for the modern Batman and frankly one of the one of my favorites, do you see a lasting negative impact through time in the way people have in the way people perceive Batman? I'm excited for you to cover this. I was it was my first ever trade that I got, even as a teen, by an uncle, and it really made me think about what comics could be. Whilst in whilst it is a bit dated, as I'm sure your discussion may note, 
it is still a pretty definitive text for the superhero comic genre and medium. My question is, do you think that TDKR is solely a product of its time or could you make a superhero story that similarly satirizes the political landscape this explicitly today? Um, I know that some stories have tried to touch on the modern landscapes in oblique references, but TDKR is very explicit in its commentary on Reagan's America. Is it a byproduct of the time or of comics you could tell in the moment, or could you conceive something in the modern age like this book? Let me know what you think. All the best, Sabrina. Uh, I... I think it's interesting because it's like, could you make it? Yes, because I know there are definitely comics out there that do satirize the modern era very well. But I'm not sure if you would get one at this level from Marvel or DC ever again. Mostly because the ability, public perception and the way the public responds to comics has changed. Because we now have Twitter. We have YouTube. We have a thousand and one ways for people to take stories out of context. And sometimes businesses, publicity is everything. And if you have a story that risks too much in the public image, they won't, they're not going to bother with it. It's, it's, it sucks that we live in that age, but you know, how many times have you seen like um, <laughs> the civil war two panel out of context or anything like that? It happens all the time and it kills intellectual properties more than it should. So it's, I think it's going to be very hard for a comic to get to this level again, but I think they should. I, you know, I, I miss comics being able to be like this, this explicit with their commentary. I think most comics today are still very apparent and obvious with their commentary and they still get flack for it, but nothing on this level, at least nothing that's coming to mind at the moment for Marvel or DC, at least. I think one of my very favorite panels of this book is when Ronald Reagan doesn't have his fake tan and hair on. Mm-hmm. That rules so hard. Um... Yeah, I don't think you're going to get this out of big two superheroes, but two comics that I think do satirize our current moment incredibly well are first Mark Russell and Steve Pugh's The Flintstones that came out in 2016. And it absolutely talks about the election of Donald Trump in pretty explicit ways. And then a little bit more like The Dark Knight Returns, analyzing our day through the 1980s written right now, though, 20th Century Men is my favorite comic I have read so far this year. It knocked my socks off. It is talking about the exact moment that we are in, but it uses historical fiction to do so. And so if you, to answer kind of your secondary question, can the Dark Knight Returns still apply to us today? Sadly, yes. A lot of the problems that Reagan's America created still exist with us today. There are global issues present because of how Ronald Reagan led America. Donald Trump was not the first person who claimed he was going to make America great again. The person who coined the phrase Ronald Reagan has left a lasting impact on American politics, the geopolitical world that we're in. And I think therefore the Dark Knight Returns remains a seminal and important text because sadly, everything it satirizes still exists in spades. And I think if you loved this, if you want more of it, read 20th Century Men. It hits a lot of the same notes. Hell yeah. Also, fuck Ronald Reagan. Okay, that's fuck the end Ronald of the episode. Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> no credits, we're logging off. Bye. <laughs>
<laughs> Just kidding. Alexis, roll credits. You got it. All right, everyone. If you like our show and want to hear more from us throughout the week, please go follow our Twitter account at CMX Collective or our TikTok account at The Comics Collective. Or you can go follow Dallas's TikTok account, which is very fun. Bing. Dallas underscore Meeks. Yes, do it. Or you can find each of us on our personal Twitters at Dallas underscore comics, at and comics, and at Lexi Lou underscore comics. If you enjoyed the show and want to show your support, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Give us a five-star review on the show. Or, like we said at the top, go and subscribe to our Patreon. We have a new Anne and Dallas talk about Doctor Who episode. So absolutely check that out. We hope you love it. Oh, absolutely. And if you have any questions or comments for us, please send them anytime to thecomicscollective at gmail.com and we will answer them on the show. And we will see you guys next week where with our episode covering Skyward by Joe Henderson, which is actually something that I found at Comic-Con. So I'm very excited. Untrue, a book that I gifted you. Mm. (laughs) I own that book. Yeah, when I moved to New York City, you own a hardcover of that book. The whole series. Then I better series. find that because I saw a picture. Somebody was selling a print of it at Comic-Con. And I was like, hmm, I took a picture of it because I was like, that seems interesting. I did that with a lot yeah, of you things. Have, you have the hardcover of that whole series with you from when I moved to New York City. Hmm. Well, Old-time surprise. Old-time favorite. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Bye, all.